Hello and welcome to Very Excellent Habits, the podcast that helps you create little habits for a big life. I'm Carly Jacobs, writer and mostly sensible habit maker. Just a warning, this episode is a touch on the heavy side. It is about death, which is a subject that we don't often talk about or give much space to, particularly in Western cultures. This week, I have guest Jackie Coyle, who is the author of In the End, A Practical Guide to Dying on the show to talk about all things, well, death. Welcome, Jackie. Thanks, Carly. Great to be here. No worries at all. So I like to start each episode with a recommendation. Uh, Mine this week is a little bit, it's a strange one. So it is Shoalhaven Zoo on the New South Wales coast near Kayama. It was just like a top notch, lovely little zoo. It was affordable. They did like little shows where the kids got to pack koalas and possums and things. And they have lions and there's this like adorable little farmyard section. And it's a little private zoo. So like they don't get funding or support from the council. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to give them a bit of a shout out today on the podcast so that if anyone's in that area, they can go and support a lovely little private zoo. So yeah, what do you, what do you recommend this week, Jackie? That sounds amazing. Well, I'm going to give you a, this one's out of the box, Carly, because I'm, I'm going to say go to Canberra in winter. Yes, it is cold, but um, sunny days, clear skies, it's just perfect weather for walking. And the food and and drink options are incredible. So, yeah, we did an amazing um, 20,000-step walk, like, across the lake. It was spectacular. Film and sound archive, etc. And also, um, if you love the Leonard French stained glass ceiling in the NGV, you must have lunch at the cafe at the National Library book plate because the Leonard French windows are actually uncovered now they were covered up for a few years so you can sit right next to one and sit in that beautiful diffused light from the stained glass funnily enough i'm actually born and bred canberra i don't live there anymore but i was raised there and it's a beautiful city yes it's stunning and all all that forethought has really come to play now isn't it interesting being in a planned city yeah it is it's, it makes such a big difference. It feels very um, kind of uh, Danish somehow because everything was, you know, so planned and, and, and thought out and everything. And, you know, because we moved from Canberra to Melbourne and when a city's not planned, <laughs> that's yes. what happens. It ends up being <laughs> Melbourne, which I love. I love Melbourne, but it's a bit of a schmozzle with uh, how many people are living there now and it was not designed to have that many people. So... Yeah, very, very interesting. I'm glad you recommended Canberra. I love a little bit of a Canberra shout-out. Oh, excellent, excellent (laughs) podcast. Like, we can never believe how easy it is to find places. It's it's very strange, especially after sort of getting lost many times in in London European cities. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. How did you cope with all the roundabouts? Oh, fine, yes. (laughs) <laughs> they, take, they take a little bit of getting used to, but yeah, yeah when you're a Canberra yeah. kid and you learn to drive, you're like, what? This is normal. And then you go to other cities and you're like, where are all your roundabouts? You don't have well, enough. we go like, when's the peak hour? <laughs> There's no peak hour. <laughs> exactly. No peak hour. Uh, we actually live in the country now, so we have zero peak hour at all. But yeah, there's no peak hour in Canberra. It's pretty sweet. Mm-hmm. So the reason why I have you on the podcast today is because you have written a book. It is called In the End, A Practical Guide for Dying. I put a shout out on my Facebook page uh, for any questions that people may have for uh, any kind of end of life experiences that they may be having for themselves or for loved ones. The response was unbelievably overwhelming. I've got some beautiful questions for uh, for you to answer from some listeners at the end of this episode. But first, can you tell us what made you write this book and what need did you see for this kind of education in the modern world? Well, um, I'm a writer and researcher, so like I write about health, travel, music and, and life in general. And um, I was writing a book about Cancer Treatment Breakthroughs, a co-write, which was also published this year. And, um, and I was invited to actually put some ideas together for a tender for this book by Fernley, which is a wonderful palliative daycare place in Melbourne's eastern suburbs. And um, they sort of had a little put-together book which had been made a few years ago and it had a lot of smiley faces and things on. So they, they wanted something a little bit more... Um, that can sort of tend to put people off. So they wanted something a bit more professional, something 
quite beautiful and something very easy to read like thinking about things like well what does happen when you die and how do you prepare like um you know remember to do stuff like think of who your car's going to go to for example so um which is it's it's such a complex topic so mm. um cars is an interesting thing to bring up because i've never even considered cars as being a thing that you need to bequeath to someone when you die well it's really funny isn't it and quite often um someone will think well i'll, I'll just give my car to so and so but they might might not want it or if you've got an antique car um and you think well you know the antique car association my local one will want it well then they have to think about upkeep and um you know cars all are those expensive. costs yeah that's right and where will they store it and whatever so yeah it's a whole lot of this is only one of the little things as an example of that came up when we were putting the book together i worked very closely with fernley to do it but um I loved the idea of palliative care, like um, like it, palliative care is all about the person as a whole person. It's not just a person like a, a cancer patient, for example. It's a person with cancer, a person who's who has work, who has family, who has loved ones, and they've got this whole separate life apart from whatever um is their terminal illness for example so um that's that's how how i structured the book i thought well how do you actually get into thinking about this topic because like it's bigger than texas when you start thinking about it and um and what's a way to get into it that's not too confronting and not too scary because there are so many complex emotions like thinking about dying you know it might be grief for someone you've lost before or it might be worry about just fear of dying. So that's how we tried to, to start off, just thinking about um, dying and death and how humans have considered it throughout humankind's history, how we've sort of puzzled about it, how we've, what we've worked out about it, and, um, and what other countries and cultures, how they deal with it too. Yeah, you, you said quite accurately that death is a very confronting topic and I, I come to having you as a guest on my podcast and, and hoping that, you know, I, I, I have full faith in you, uh, myself not so much because I haven't, uh, luckily haven't dealt with a lot of uh, death in my life thus far. But um, yeah, you, you did mention that it is a confronting topic. Um, and can, can we talk about why death is such a taboo subject? Because I, I read in the book that um, you, you quote some research that says that 70%, sorry, 77% of page patients who were aged 79 on average had their first recorded end of life discussion just three days before their death. And in emergency situations, 82% of patients over the age of 82 had no written end of life discussion um like that that was actually alarming reading those statistics and thinking like you 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 can kind of understand for people who are younger maybe they haven't had those conversations but you know people over the age of 82 having never had an end of life discussion it kind of seems like well you know you're, you're kind of on that end of 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 life perhaps that's something that should have come up so why why are we so weird about talking about death and you know even in older age where it might be seemingly more inevitable well, it's actually not, it's not surprising um, on a number of levels, Carly, when you think about like throughout history, death has been seen as the enemy. Like um, here, even in ancient Greek Roman times, the hero was the one who defeated death, who managed to, you know, who managed to come back. And, um, and also religion, this has been puzzling about that for so, so many millennia about you know life after death what does actually happen and no no one actually knows no one's actually come back to tell us about this and um and popular culture now like if you look at for example superhero movies they're the ones who have managed to defeat death and um and not get killed and then the baddie gets killed and it's this it's kind of quite unreal really but the other thing which is much more interesting um, in terms of putting it into context is that we are actually 
our pattern of dying is different now. It's changed. Like even 200 years ago, you could be walking along the road and um, and you'd get run over by a runaway carriage, for example, or you could get an infection and just die, like get consumption and uh, any kind of accident could happen. Even, you know, childbirth. Childbirth was an amazingly risky thing for both the mother and the child. So you're just sort of going along in life and you think of it as, as like a straight line, you're going along and then bang, you know, you can be dead within a couple of days. There's a fantastic story I love about a Hawaiian princess who was very, very beautiful and uh, she was riding in the summer and then there was a, a rain, sudden rainstorm and she got a chill and she was dead within a couple of days. And that's that's what it used to be like. But now modern medicine has changed this so that so that there's antibiotics, vaccines, all sorts of things, and then replacement of parts as well. So lifespan has become extended and then there are also a lot of different patterns to dying as well. For example, you might have a cardiac condition. So you might have a whole lot of little little events and, you know, that might continue all your life. You've got medications and things. So you, if, if you're thinking about it like a graph, it's sort of going down in little bumps and then you may have something like dementia, which is, can be, <coughs> excuse me, a long, slow decline. For example, my father had dementia for... 12 years before he died and he he had this long slow decline with that so the thing is well another interesting statistic is only 20% of us die suddenly so the other 80% of us we've actually got a bit of warning we've got time to actually think about it and plan it That's a really interesting statistic because I think um, you know sudden death is very much uh, something that you know, people are kind of scared of every day. I know that in my own irrational little anxiety riddled brain, I I do kind of feel like sudden death is a much bigger threat than it actually is. Yeah, I think of it as quite quite a comforting statistic. And uh, yeah, I used to ride motorcycles. So sudden death was, um, was a lot more realistic in those days. Absolutely. And motorbikes are actually just way more dangerous than people think they are. Yeah, it's not so much motorcycles, I think, as uh, the other drivers on the road. Definitely, yeah. Not absolutely. seeing them, etc. So there, there is a section of the book that describes what happens physically when we die, and I did find that bit a touch confronting. So just a warning if you're listening that this isn't something you feel good about hearing today. Would you mind talking to us about what happens physically when we die? Because I think that that's not something that people really discuss very often. Yeah, well... Dying is, um, if you think of it like being born, it is actually a natural process. Most most deaths go have similar stages, and um, which are, are common. And they, um, it's all to do with the body starting to shut down. So the body's shutting down, and sort of getting rid of inessentials. So um, so the final stage, it's. Um, growing weaker and more tired, losing your appetite because you actually don't need that nutrition to, you know, you're not running and jumping and... And um, and your body kind of knows that and is signalling that you're no longer going to live so you don't need nutrients anymore. That's right, yeah. So you're losing your appetite, your blood pressure's changing and then... There's the organs, so like the kidneys are shutting down the brain. And um, so there can be a little bit of increasing delirium and there can be irregular breathing as well. And so these are all natural stages and they can be freaky if you don't understand, but, um, but there's nothing abnormal about it. And you can also have difficulty swallowing and being unable to close your eyes. So it's all these it's all these things that the body is just shutting down. But also while this is happening, there's 
so much going on, like the person can seem to be not there because they have got so much going on in their head, like they're, they're thinking about their life, sort of going back over it, thinking about if they have regrets or, or who, who they want to say goodbye to. And so it's, it's quite, there's a lot going on when it seems like there's not so much. Do, do you know if um, organs and people's bodies tend to shut down in the same order? Like, I'm, I don't know if that's an odd question, but like, is kind of the brain the last thing to go or the, the kidneys the last thing to go? Or is it just kind of whatever disease they have, it kind of just takes on a mind of its own? Yeah, there's a whole lot of variables, of course, like, you know, there's no, no set Mm. set thing but um and and it can do with a person's age it can be do it can be to do with their gender or all these other circumstances yeah so there um there is a fabulous section in the book about possessions um and you mentioned earlier about cars that was one of the things that you mentioned that people don't tend to kind of uh, plan much with with cars can you mm. talk about the biggest mistakes that people make with their possessions and their wills so like with all of your research and all of the the, the schmozzles that you've seen at the end of people's lives when they haven't correctly delegated things what are your what are your top tips for making sure that things get delegated correctly oh look it can, yeah it can be a schmozzle carly i tell you and and um in my personal experience like my mum said well you know my girls will do it for me and um, so when did she die? 2016. So I'm still trying to, trying to um, finally get this sorted. <laughs> so, so the biggest mistakes people make are not starting early enough. Because what can happen um, with, with an illness, for example, well, you can just not have the energy. Your energy levels have dropped. You've got a lot of medical appointments. Um, there also might be mental decline as well. So... Um, so that's why it's important to sort of start thinking about these wishes. People also make the mistake of assuming that their nearest and dearest will know what they want and with um, whatever. So, so there's three really the most important things that I think whatever age you are, and this, this can actually make you a really happier person as well, um, thinking about how you'd like to be remembered what you'd like to happen to your body and what you'll leave behind for other people. And what you'll leave behind is not just possessions, it's like your legacy photos, memories, things for people you love as well. I um I love what you said about like how you would like to be remembered. Is that something that comes up a bit with patients at the end of their life? Like they do they talk about how like how they would like to be remembered? Um, it's not so much talk about, well, people are so, people are so different, Carly, um, and people approach it in so many different ways. Like some people don't even want to think about it. And, um, I was talking to a palliative care physician and he said, look, you know, some people just don't want to know, they don't want to think about it. And of course that is their right. Like a person who is dying has got the right to approach it however way whichever way they want to. And maybe that is easier for some people to just kind of let it happen and not acknowledge it too much because that might Mm -hmm. be just an easier journey for them. Whereas other people might be quite contemplative and reflective about it. And, yeah, um, I was talking to an end-of-life nurse. I mean, I noticed a lot of the comments about palliative care nurses, how fantastic they are, and she was saying, like, People approach dying the same way as they approach any other event in life. And, you know, Mm. the same way. And dying can be a crisis, so however they'd approach a crisis, that's generally the way they'll continue going. Yeah, that's really interesting. I I can see that in the the, the, the few people that I know that have died of illness. They have actually approached it in a really similar way that they would have approached any kind of big event in their life. That's, yeah, that's really, that's very insightful. Um, I do have a few reader questions if you don't mind answering them. We got uh, just such a beautiful response from the the listeners. 
Uh, question number one, I've kept them all anonymous, um, mm-hmm. except for one who, who writes beautifully about, uh, when she was caring for her husband and I will link to some of her writing because she's just written beautiful things about that, but she'll come a bit later. So question number one is, hello, lovely. I saw your post about palliative care. I'd be very interested to listen to the podcast as I'm currently caring for my mother-in-law who's end stage breast cancer, um, which has unfortunately spread to her brain. She's declining quite quickly. We're caring for her at home until the end as per her wishes. I'd really like to know how in the final days we can be prepared for that as a family, but also the most important things I can do for her to keep her comfortable and happy and what actually happens towards the end. Um, It's a sad first for our family. We've never been so close to a situation like this and I just want to do the very best for her. I think that's a fantastic question. Thank you so much Um, because this is actually what took me on this journey um, when my sister was diagnosed with bowel cancer in 2012. She was my younger sister. I had four sisters, but um, like big sister, always, you always want to look after your little sister. And we were devastated. Nothing like this had happened in our family before. And we didn't know how we could help or or what was going to happen. It was just a total... Um, total mind mind blow and um some really helpful things i can i'd like to tell you about the ring theory which was um which was thought up by a clinical psychologist susan silk she um it's thinking about families friends how you can support someone who's dying and it's a way of sort of starting to think about it's not about you so we've sort of touched touched on this like the dying person is at the center of whatever's happening and so you might be shocked you might be moved to see how ill they are and to find out they're dying but it's not about you so you'll only make things worse if you look to the dying person for support so what I want you to do is imagine um, a small circle. So you've got the dying person in the middle of that circle. So let's say this person's called Bob. So you're drawing a larger circle around this one. And in the ring you've just created, you can put the person close, the people closest to Bob. That might be his wife, Lucy, his children, for example. Now, Draw an even larger circle around this one for the next people. That's Bob's parents, close friends. And then another circle around that for his other friends, workmates, acquaintances and distant relatives. So you've got these rings and the rules are in that ring, complain outwards and comfort inwards. And so... How this works is Bob can say anything he likes to anyone. Bob can complain, he can whinge, he can say why me or however he wants. Everyone else can say those things too, but only to people on in the outer rings of the circle. So when you're talking to someone in a ring that's closer to the centre than you are, that's your role is to be comforting and supportive. So if you're in that ring outside, Lucy, don't tell her or Bob how hard it is for you to see him like this. Go to someone who's further out. Which is perfect because that's what this listener did. You know, they needed some advice and some support and they went way, way, way out of the rings and and, and came to us who are not attached to the situation at all. So that's that's, that's really perfect. Yeah, now they can – and this is another really important point – Sorry to interrupt, Carl. No, not at all. Um, so, so this person needs to find people in between our ring and the centre of the ring to support. Caring for someone who's dying can be tough. It can be incredibly rewarding, but you need support as well. So find someone who can, like friends, it could be other people in your family who can support, especially if it's your mother-in-law, you might have sisters or someone who can help you to be strong. 
That's wonderful advice. Thank you. So we'll move on to question two. When someone has a terminal diagnosis, but is currently living well and they're very active, when is the best time to make contact with palliative care? That's a, that's a great question as well, because palliative care is not about, you know, you're going to die tomorrow. Palliative care is means that you're caring for that person when you're not trying to cure that person anymore. So the other thing to think about is that quite often there can be waiting lists to get palliative care, which is why it's a really good idea to get onto it as, as soon as you know, basically, and start to access that help. Um, just with the other listener as well, I had another note, um, ask the nurse what's going to happen so you know what to expect. Nurses are fantastic. Like you can ask the doctor as well, but nurses are the people who understand all these stages and they can tell you what to expect and what kind of support, give you advice about that. Oh, across the board, I completely agree. Anytime I've had any contact with a hospital, the nurses have all the answers. They they know all the things and they've been at the front line and they, they, they can tell you all of the kind of personal, interpersonal things that a lot of the time doctors don't get yes. the opportunity to engage with. So, yeah, absolutely. I love that. Yeah, they're fantastic people. Um, is there also a difference, like, I mean, obviously, depending on what a person's illness is. So, for example, you mentioned, was it your father that died of dementia? Yeah. Yes. So, mm-hmm. and, and you said it, it was 12 years? Yes, he had it for a long time. And that was, it's, it's really hard when you, when you lose that person, you know, you lose that relationship, they become another person. But there are some things, other ways you can communicate, like they may not be able to speak to you or make sense to you or keep repeating things to you. But things like touch and music are incredibly important. And for any dying person, like touch is the thing. They can feel quite alone as they're working through all these things in their head. So, and But that sense of touch can help to ground them and that love and support is the only thing that that can help after the cure well, is not I, going to help. I guess that's kind of similar with newborn babies because they're not quite here yet. Yes. And touch is one of the only things that you really have. It's the only way you can really communicate with them because they can't talk. They can't really see very well when, you know, they're, they're very, very fresh. So mm-hmm. it's kind of a, um, a lovely bookend, really, when you think about it. That's right, yeah. Yeah, I went to see my, um, I have an aunt who hasn't, she's sort of on that journey, um, on that journey, she's, she's sort of had enough, basically. And I went to see her and, and, um, and I said, "Um, how are you going? And she said, oh, sit, sit down, sit on the bed here. And I sat on the bed and I said, are you sure that that's not painful for you? Because she had two broken hips. And she said, oh, look, if it's too painful, I'll tell you to bugger off. (laughs) (laughs) So beautiful. And I just sat there and held her hand. And but like people give you signals as well. Like that that thing about touch, touching, hugging, kissing, whatever Mm. your relationship is with that person. And if they don't want you to do it, well, they'll they'll tell you. Yeah, we've got um, a, a family member of ours who just turned 100 and she's in excellent health. But mm-hmm. um, she always she always makes you come down because like, she's often sitting in a chair and she'll be like, can you can you bend down? Because she's like, I'm not, not looking up anymore. She's like, I'm 100 years old. Can you just come and like <laughs> kneel right in front of me? Like, it's not too much to ask. Get me a glass of wine and sit next to me or kneel in front of me because I'm not, I'm not dealing with this anymore. So it's... <laughs> That's one thing I love about getting old. You can just say whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and it's charming. Like, honestly, yeah. I'm just like, yeah, tell me what you want. I'll do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so I've got question three for you. Um, I've experienced palliative care twice for two of my loved ones. I understand the physical aspect of knowing when the end is near. I would like to know if you have seen or experienced or heard of anything as the patient passed or soon after. I think kind of that's more of a spiritual based thing. Is there any, have you heard any anecdotes about more of a spiritual passing rather than a a physical passing? Look, it is, 
a really spiritual time. I mean, I've sat with three, yeah, four people actually um, in in those very final, and it it is a very spiritual time. And there are, are some fantastic books about it, which which relate to people's visions, um, and also people see someone in the other room. They see people in that no one else can see and they'll be talking to them so and I think of it kind of like a river which after writing this book um, that's that's how I think of my life it's like this boundary between the living and the dead is not is not solid anymore it's like we're going down this river and there's all these people who are also we're passing as we go down the river. Oh, I love that. That's, that's so, that's so emotive thinking of like, and like you're, you're on one side of the river and the, they're kind of like floating towards the other side. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, they'll, they'll come by and cause you, you might think, Oh, I wish I could, I wish I could ask mum that or, um, and she, yes, it's interesting if you're still enough. Well, it does happen. So moving on to question number four, what signs do humans display that you're looking for to know if a patient is very close to death? So within maybe an hour or two, are there any tells or anything that you can kind of, cause, cause you know how, like when people are in palliative care, you, mm. you, you hear about people getting phone calls saying, you know, this, this person's probably only got a couple of hours. You should probably yeah. come mm-hmm. in. Um, do, do you know of any of the, the physical or um, even emotional signs that someone might be very close to the end? It's, it can be really complicated. Like, for example, when um, my, I was working up in the Kimberley and I had a phone call to say, look, Dad is not going to. He's, he's got about five days to go and like people came from all over the world and um, descended on him and and uh, he lived for another six years so it it is actually (laughs) (laughs) very very hard to tell but often like nurses can be the best people because they're looking at the signs and uh, and they've got the machines of course to, to know the vital signs, but they're so experienced in it. So it does depend on the individual person definitely as well. Yeah, definitely. That's, that's, again, that's very similar to childbirth. Like midwives are geniuses. They'll be like, mm-hmm. yeah, you'll have this baby in the next hour. And most of the time they're right. <laughs> and you're like, how did you know that? Like, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, nurses, there's, there's something about nurses. They're, yeah. they're very, very, very special people. So question number five, how do you help prepare someone for death if they're struggling to accept it? I I assume this question is possibly aimed at like younger people who may have a terminal illness. Um, I I, I can't speak for people who are, you know, in their 80s or 90s, but I assume that by the time you're in your 80s or 90s, you're probably a little bit mentally better equipped to deal with it than say if you're 20. Yes, absolutely. And... There are all these, well, I probably should talk about grief Please, at this yeah. stage because, well, you've probably heard of the book, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's book, The Five Stages of Grief. Yeah. And so that was originally written um, for about patients who, who had been diagnosed with a limited time to live. And it's sort of become applied to that other kind of grief when someone close to you has died. So so you've got one and it's they're both ex, they're both um a reaction to some kind of a loss. So when you've been diagnosed as having this limited time to live, you've got all this loss to think about. Like you won't have any more experiences. You won't be able to do all these things you want to. You might have unfinished projects. And it might seem really unfair. And a way to think of why it seems really unfair is we tend as humans to think of life in 
three stages, like a three-act play, if you will. So there's childhood, adulthood and elderhood. And it just seems really unnatural when someone dies without having those three stages. And with someone, I think someone younger perhaps or trying to prepare someone, they're going to accept it, as we talked about, you know, the way the way they deal with other crises in their life. But I would suggest that you get some professional help, like there's Palliative Care Australia, there's Beyond Blue, there's a whole raft of... And there's special children's, young people's grief uh, websites and services as well. So I would get a professional psychologist counsellor to help with that. Yeah, that's that's excellent advice. I think that um, a lot of people try to be too kind of personal and insular about it, and it is just another uh, thing that you have to deal with in life, particularly if you are quite young. And so professional helpers are really, really good. That's <laughs> we, right. Yeah, yeah we, we, weirdly obvious advice that I wouldn't have thought of on my own. So that's that's great. Um, well, the thing is, even with palliative care nurses or, or people like this, they've had to actually come to terms with their own fears and they've had to do a whole lot of personal development so that they can be in a, an unbiased, unjudgmental mm. state to help other people. And quite often, and you know, if you're trying to help someone you love... Well, that's bound up with your own grief. You've got your own feelings that um, it's going to be really hard to deal with as well. Palliative care nurses, like the, I've, I've, I've only met a handful of them uh, in my life, but they they seem to be uh, so unbelievably brilliant at their job. And do they have sort of training on how to leave their their work at work? Because I just I imagine it would be obviously a very special job, but also a very sad one as well. Well, it can be really sad and it can also be rewarding um, because they create this, well, they form these, they can form quite deep bonds with people. Like, for example, Bronnie Ware, who wrote a book called The Top Five Regrets of the Dying, was a palliative care nurse, and she formed these very, very strong relationships because people often want to talk. They might want to talk about the grandchildren, they might, might want to talk about the, the regrets they have. And so th- they do form these bonds. So these top five regrets, I can't tell you all of them because um, it's I'll, copyright. I'll, I'll, link, I'll link to them in the show notes. There's a lot of really yeah, beautiful infographics. I've I've seen them before. They're, they're wonderful. They're just a really yeah, nice thing Bronnie, to read. Bronnyware.com. Yeah. yeah. They, they, but they, I mean... They, yeah, <laughs> they pop up on social media every couple of years and do the rounds and they're just a really lovely reminder of how to live your life now so that you don't have those regrets when you, when Absolutely. you do, when your time comes. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, question number six, have you, uh, you, you've mentioned that you have experienced, uh, palliative care as the relation of a patient. What were your thoughts on the palliative care that those people received and has it changed the way that you view palliative care? Yes, um, I've experienced it with my sister. She was in, well, she was in Lismore actually. And well, she was, um, she was jaundiced by the time I, in the, in the final days. And she was in a beautiful room and people just, created this lovely space and just left us to it and I thought that was really important so they were there when they were needed and they went away when they were not needed um, in terms of my mother she was she was a nurse she was in Alfred Hospital she loved being well she didn't love being in hospital but she felt very comfortable there and that's the thing that's really important to think about like most people actually want to die at home mm. very few actually managed to achieve that because it does require some planning Mm. you need a lot of people it's like you need a village to raise a child you need a village to die at home um what what are some of the practicalities of dying at home that people maybe haven't thought about 
Um, well, that care um, and just the strain on the carer, like they're trying to deal with their emotional thing, but it can be quite demanding physically. And they do need support. Places like Fernley are very aware of that support. Mm. They offer support to the carers. They offer them respite care. So if you can have a few people like the carer and then people to support the carer as well, people who can come in and like do things like do the shopping or help with some cleaning. Or, Make some um, dinners. Yes, dinners are fantastic, but be careful about um, making sure that you're not giving food poisoning as well by you oh. know, refrigerating, etc. Yes. <laughs> Don't leave a casserole on the veranda. Yeah, <laughs> make sure it's there to be received. Yes, exactly. And um, even things like creating a roster with people to come yeah. and visit and thinking about things like, you know, you, if someone's really practical, they might be able to help organise paperwork, things like this, um, checklists. There's some fantastic checklists and um, websites as well, like Services Australia has a great website with, you know, what to do when someone dies. So you can have this whole series of checklists so you know what to do and if emotion becomes too overwhelming. Um, actually, that just reminded me um, earlier in the year, uh, a friend of ours passed away and he's our age. So he was like in his mid thirties, which was just devastating. Uh, but I don't live in the same city it as is. him anymore, mm. but he, um, uh, a friend of theirs did a meal train thing and organized it. And I, I couldn't participate in it because I don't live in the same city, but it was wonderful watching this person organize it. And they said exactly what type of meals they needed um, yeah. and, and, and specified that the meals were mainly for his wife. Um, but also for him so if it could be food that's soft that could be swallowed easily um, no meat because meat wasn't perfect, agreeing with him at the perfect. time it, there was just so much detail and and specific instructions on how to drop it off as well because it was in the middle of COVID so you know mm-hmm. like, we're still in COVID oh, but it was yeah. very much the, the 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 height of COVID like when everything had opened up again and um, they said you know make sure that you let his wife know when you're dropping them off if you would like to see her please wear a mask please don't hug her because because she can't take any diseases back into him. And just, just the, the amount of detail that went into it was just extraordinary. And it was just something I wanted to share with the listeners. If you're, if you're on one of the outer tiers, I think that was a very good way to, to support them in that time. And by doing something practical and, and probably using skills that you have, like if you are That's a very right. practical mm. organized person. And, and the, I, I was just really impressed by by how she worded everything and was like, I was like, this is great. If I lived in Melbourne, I would totally do this because the instructions are so clear and I, I, this is a way that I can help that, you know, has been expressed to me. So, yeah, just throwing that one out there as something if, if anyone wants to, to do that, if they happen to find themselves in the position. Yeah, no, it's because people live busy lives. If you don't have to make these decisions, it's yeah. brilliant. But that's and that's another thing that I wanted to bring up, Carly. Like I had um, a friend who was, well, she'd been diagnosed with tongue cancer. Wow. And yeah, and every all all their friends didn't know what to do, so they abandoned them, and that's the last thing people need. And if you don't know what to do as a friend, or uh, just ask the person, ask the ask their partner or whatever just to see what they need that's yeah that's that's perfect advice or ask someone in like a tier around that might have that's some right. some yeah. intel yeah i must um, say i knew nothing then so i thought oh well my job is to, just to distract them <laughs> so yeah. i used to <laughs> That's that was my mode. <laughs> yeah, and also I, I really like the idea of people looking at their own strengths and what they can bring to that kind of a situation. And some people would be excellent at sitting by a sick person's bedside, and that's a thing that they should do. And if someone is not so good at that, they can organise the food train. <laughs> so put your put your skills in in that you know that they will benefit from, rather than trying to Perfect. do a thing that you're not particularly good at. Yeah, and if you if you visit the person, I mean, people. People die as they live. So some people want to be alone. Some people love the whole crowd around them. But don't think that you have to visit for ages. You know, just 
quarter of an hour, half an hour, and say when you'll be back. So um, that can be really helpful to someone. When you get there, say, oh, would you like some music on? Do you want me to close the curtains? And just sort of be very sensitive to, to their surroundings. And if you can give the carer a break, that's even better if they're being cared for at home. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, bring a few meals for the carer who probably doesn't have time to cook themselves yes. dinner. Yeah. So question number seven is from my lovely friend, Sandra. She is a beautiful, beautiful writer and has written over the last few years um, about caring for her late husband as he died from a long-term illness. She said that he would sometimes smile and wave at the corner of the room in his final days. And um, her son asked him who he was waving at. And he was quite lucid when he said, when I find out, I'll let you know. Um, and <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so, and you mentioned before that you you know that a lot of people that are at the end of their life do seem to see people in the room that no one else can see. Um, do you know if they're seeing people that they can that that they have met or they do know, or if they're seeing brand new people? Have you heard of either of those? What I've heard of is it's always people they have known. And it can be distressing um, sometimes, like my ex-husband, his mother thought he was her brother. So there was a little bit of dementia at play there. But it's, yeah, if you can just think of it as they're sort of, they're gradually withdrawing from life. So, and they're gradually withdrawing their need for you as well, which... It's, and it's just, if you can accept that, it's, it's just part of the journey. Perhaps they're moving backwards, like perhaps they're kind of going from where they are in time and kind of going back over their life and mm-hmm. picking out people that aren't there anymore and maybe kind of seeing them in that in-between space. Yeah, yeah, it's sort of like a balancing, um, you know, like balancing the books, going back and looking at, like, at it like that. Yeah, kind of just like a, an audit perhaps of life yeah Yeah, I like that way of thinking of it but um yeah the thing is that and listening I wanted to really emphasize listening as well we've talked about touch um and I wanted to talk about acceptance too like just accept that everyone's got the right to die they the way they want to so all you can do is be there and say look I'm here however you are I'm here for you and I won't abandon you and also, um, we need to, if someone has been diagnosed with a life-limiting illness, always tell them, don't try and keep it from them. They have that right to know and they've got a right to talk about it honestly and sensitively with you without having it, having things hidden from them. So basically it's, you know, I accept you, I, mean, I accept where you're at, I accept what's happening to you. And then using touch and also listening. So we don't have to solve their problems. We just need to be there and listen. And sit with their problems. Yes. Well, that's a beautiful sentiment to wrap up on. (laughs) Um, I do like to finish the show with a little segment called Kicked Ass and Kicked My Ass, where we each share something that kicked our ass this week and something that we kicked ass at. Um, So (laughs) my kicked ass this week is that we went on a little holiday for five days, um, which was just lovely. Um, But we're business owners, so like you, you really have to earn that time off uh, in order to, you know, actually get the time off. So we had two very, very busy weeks surrounding those five days off. I'm nodding my head. Yes. Great podcast. Body language. (laughs) Having run my own business for decades. Yes. I totally understand. It's so hard. And like, it was worth it and it was wonderful. And our three-year-old just had the time of her life, but we were just like, just because we only had two days to do five days worth of work leading up to it. And now we're catching up from all the stuff that we missed from the week before. So that's, (laughs) that's my kick to my ass this week is, you know, trying to find time off as a business owner. (laughs) What, Mm. what kicked your ass this week? Oh, well, like we had this amazing holiday and we, oh, first of all, we went to Canberra. Then we came back for one night. This is ridiculous. This is using up all our credits from what we've missed out from COVID. The (laughs) next, the next day we went up to Cairns and Port Douglas. Wow. So we we totally, we had to pack like two, (laughs) two, two totally different wardrobes. 
and like carry on always we went no there's no way we're going to risk losing our luggage so yeah no I don't, I don't yeah. check luggage anymore I'm a, I'm a carry-on gal <laughs> absolutely but then we got back and I could not believe two people how could two people have this mountain of dirty clothes <laughs> so, so anyway, so that's that's where I kicked ass as well. So they're all washed now. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. Um, my kicked ass was like a, attached to my holiday as well. So um, our three-year-old was an absolute delight the entire time or most of the time, which was fantastic because last time we went away with her, she was dreadful. So oh. it, was, <laughs> it was a very, very nice to have a, a different fantastic. experience this time so yes yeah, so that was good and your your kick-ass was that you've done all your laundry now <laughs> oh well, I had yeah no I had some other ones but they were to do with work so yeah oh, I finished what, it what was marvelous that happened at work this week well I I had started this writing job like writing is really weird like every project is so different you're starting every project as if you've never written before and I thought, oh, this is just a nice little job, you know, writing a thousand words about a career as a counsellor for a university. And, like, it just ended up this monolith <laughs> because it was so much more complicated than I thought. Anyway, my kick-ass was I finished it and the editor loves it. So that's all good. Oh, perfect. Well done. That's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening to Very Excellent Habits, the podcast that helps you create little habits for a big life. Don't forget that Jackie's book is available on Booktopia. It is called In the End, A Practical Guide for Dying, and there's a link for where to buy it in the show notes. I'm Carly Jacobs. You can find me on Instagram at Very Excellent Habits, and you can also email me contact at carlyjacobs.com. You can also record a question for me to answer on the show at speakpipe.com forward slash Very Excellent Habits. For all of the resources that you hear about on the show, you can grab them at patreon.com forward slash Very Excellent Habits. And please, please leave a rating and a review for the podcast. It's the best way to help other people find the show. Until next time, remember, little habits, big life. I conclude this episode by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which I record today and pay my respects to their elders past and present. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land.